0: Hello, and welcome on into Dogs in Autumn, the history of American football. Today we'll be talking about a man who is indisputably the single most influential figure in the development of football, Walter Camp. You probably also notice I keep changing things in the production and audio. Sorry about that. I had a lot of this done in a particular way I liked, but then my daughter accidentally crushed my laptop, so I'm having to figure out how best to proceed with equipment and software available for my phone. In short, I'm working on it. But I'm happy to be here, and of course very happy to have you here as well. If you're a fan of the game today, even a very big fan of the game, there's a decent chance you may not know much about Walter Camp beyond his name. Hell, it's possible you don't know that either. But make no mistake, without Walter Camp there is no American football, at least not as we know it. When he died in 1925, football has mo- had more or less assumed its modern shape, at least in terms of the basic rules and mechanics of the game. But virtually none of those things existed when he first played the game at Yale in 1876. Officiating was handled by a pair of volunteer umpires, one from each school, who understood the game well enough but didn't play. Consensus was reached with the help of a referee who was usually older and supposed to be unbiased. There were no coaches, team captains handled team preparation and game day planning. The forward pass wasn't just illegal, it might not have even occurred to anyone yet, as the concept would have been utterly anathema to all prior existing codes of football in the English-speaking world. At the time Walter Camp attended his first meeting at the Intercollegiate Football Association in 1878, football was, and knew itself to be, simply a variation of rugby. I intend to do an episode shortly comparing the two, but for now, the biggest problem on Walter Camp's mind was chaos. When he looked at what was then called the scrimmage, but today in rugby at least would be called the scrum. Walter Camp saw a mess where possession of the ball was essentially determined by raw power with a heavy dose of luck, and he didn't much care for it. He proposed his line of scrimmage be formed when play stopped after a tackle. Instead of opposing lines interlocking to push each other off the ball in a fight for possession, possession would be determined by the number of times the offense's ball carrier had been brought down by the defense. Hence the term for this downs. Today, American football uses a system of 4 downs to advance the ball 10 yards. In the first version of his system, it was 3 downs for 5 yards. He was also instrumental in switching the game to one based on points. That probably sounds bizarre to the modern year, but remember back in my first episode about the first game of football between Princeton and Rutgers, I mentioned that the match was played in 10 rounds and the first to win 6 rounds won the match. Today, All football codes are decided by points, but the system deployed by Rutgers and some other schools was this system of rounds derived from the Football Association. By the time of Walter Camp, that wasn't entirely the system anymore, but the scoring system of touchdowns and field goals innovated by Harvard and McGill hadn't fully set in yet either. Some schools in 1880 still preferred a less rugby-oriented game. And so the struggle to keep features of early association football from being reinstated was constant. Like I've mentioned before, and it may seem silly now, but Walter Camp was approaching this with a particular set of priors. He was an adherent of muscular Christianity and a believer in a so-called scientific approach to the game. Muscular Christianity demanded a tough sport to instill discipline and foster fitness among American men. Camp's scientific approach to achieving that required the de-emphasis of individual skills, like kicking a goal, in favor of team skills, like advancing the ball down the field. It also required diminishing the role of luck in the game as much as possible, hence the removal of the contested scrimmage in favor of the down system. Additionally, he's one of the figures credited with first standardizing the arrangement of a football offense. That is, he had seven men on the line of scrimmage with four players in the backfield, a quarterback, two halfbacks, and a fullback. This is what we would today call a personnel package, specifically it would be 32 personnel, and it's a hilariously archaic package with a modern passing game, especially when you consider the two in this 32 personnel package wouldn't actually be tight ends, just two extra linemen. This sort of thing today is typically reserved for short yardage and goal line situations, but ground attack sickos like me would love to see it come back anywhere on the field. It's almost impossible to isolate any of his innovations as the most important. They're all pretty essential to what the game is today. But one that's particularly unique is the role he played in the emergence of a completely new position in football. One that, while not on the field, was only slightly off it. That is, the coach. To this point, as I've said, team captains fill the leadership role for early football teams. This was true across all codes of football, and to this day no other code has coaches as actively involved in the game as football does. But because football belonged to the universities, and because your eligibility therefore expired as soon as you were handed your degree, by 1880 you had a whole class of men in their late 20s and early 30s who had been playing and fighting over this game for about a decade, and weren't ready to be done yet. And while in other games that would have probably been been true too, There still might not have been a large role for them to fill if the American game had remained just another version of rugby, but it didn't. With each of the changes instituted by Camp and his compatriots, football became more and more distinct and more and more complex. You wouldn't really see the possibilities created by these changes begin to be explored until the 1930s, shortly after Camp's death. But even back in the 1880s, the game was becoming too complex to be properly managed by its student players, who had all the demands on their time that comes with being college students. So Walter Camp became one of the game's earliest non-playing coaches, and compiled a great record of 79 wins, 5 losses, and 3 ties between stints at Yale University and Stanford University. When he wasn't arguing in the IFA's now annual rules meetings, or being one of the earliest dedicated coaches, Walter Camp had a further role for the emerging sport. He was its microphone. By the time of his death, he'd published 30-some-odd books largely on the subject of football, and had been featured in a huge swath of the most influential periodicals of the day, as well as seeing publication in newspapers from coast to coast. The debt the sport owes him really can't be understated. He published the first All-America teams, a practice which continues to this day, and people were already calling him the father of American football by the time he was 33. He would go on to advise the U.S. War Department on fitness at the outset of the First World War, and later pollsters, in typical college football fashion, retroactively named three of his Yale teams as national champions for their respective seasons. But, for my next supplemental episode, We are unfortunately going to skip Walter Camp's beloved Yale University. Next time, I'm starting a new series to run alongside the chronological history for a few episodes at least. It's called Team Highlights, and our first team will be the Tigers of Princeton University. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then.